day for the church at Redeemer, because on this day we will finish the book of 2 Samuel. And all God's people said, Amen. It's about time, preacher. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, I think it's been about two years since we began 1 Samuel. Uh, so we are concluding the book of 2 Samuel. Next week we will be in the book of Philippians. Uh, so if you want to cheat and read ahead, uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. We're going to look at what God does uh, through the church and the New Testament and how God uh, gives us joy uh, in the midst of overwhelming difficulty and trial. 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is a lengthy passage. Uh, I looked at it and there's just nothing I can skip, nothing I can uh, uh, overlook. And so we're going to read all of 2 Samuel chapter 24. And so I just pray that you will uh, be patient with us as we read through this text. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. And the king said to Joab, the commander of their army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of my lord the king will see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commander of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. And they crossed the Jordan and camped at Aurora on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad and toward Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatumashadai. And they came to Danjan and around Sidon, and they came to the fortress of Tyre and to the cities and the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. And when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty-eight and twenty days. Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly, what have I done? But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus says the Lord, I am offering you three, three things. Choose for yourself one of them which I may do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hands of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel 
who destroyed the people. It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned. It is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let thy hand be against me and against my father's house. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And then David went according to the word of the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aruna looked down and saw that the king, his servant, was crossing over toward him. And Aruna went and bowed his face toward the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be held back from the people. And Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen from the burnt offering and the threshing sledge and the yokes of the oxen for wood. Everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aruna, No, I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord, offered burnt offerings and the place and peace offerings. And thus the Lord was moved by entreaty for Israel. And the plague was held back from the land. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great grace and your great mercy. And we pray that we may see your goodness this morning. I may you speak to our hearts through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's my prayer that as we leave today, that we are overwhelmed by the mercies of God. As we get into this text, the theme that permeates all of the book of Samuel is that Samuel is not about a covenant king. It's about a covenant God. We've looked at at Samuel, we've looked at 1 Samuel, we've looked at 2 Samuel, we've looked in 1 Samuel, how David steps in and he slays Goliath, how God spares David and how, how Saul is pursuing David and yet God providentially uh, stays the hand of Saul and, and elevates David as the king and God consolidates all the nation uh, all the nation of Israel under one king and God establishes David as the king, as the covenant king of God and he establishes a covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 with David and from the line of David all of the nation of Israel uh, will, will place their uh, submission and their allegiance to a king from the line of David. We know that that is ultimately Christ. But all of the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it could be seen as a book about the king, about David. But I believe that 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is more about the covenant God rather than the covenant king. It speaks of God's overwhelming mercies, God's patience, God's love, God's endurance, God's faithfulness in the midst of David and Israel's failures and, and their misgivings and their, uh, their worshiping false gods and their serving other kings and their, their upheaval and all that went wrong. We see the faithfulness of a covenant king. And we begin 2 Samuel chapter 24 
And we're told that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. But what's interesting in this text is we're not told why. Just says the angel of the Lord or the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. But they don't tell us why. We can speculate. We can say, well, it was because Israel followed Absalom. They, they gave their allegiance and their, their, their service to Absalom, the, the son of David who took the throne by force and chased his father out of the throne. And clearly that was a, a bad decision. Clearly that was wickedness. And so the anger of the Lord burned against him and possibly. Or maybe it was because Israel followed Sheba, the, the, the leader that would come after Absalom and, and would try and overthrow David again. And, and maybe it was because they, they failed to submit themselves under the covenant king that God had established before them. Possibly. We don't know. We don't know why the anger of the Lord burned against them. And there are many times in our lives whenever God doesn't give us an answer. In fact, I believe the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, is an entire book where there really is no answer. We see at the beginning of the book of Job, Satan comes to God and they have this dialogue and and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And God says, and Satan says, well, that's because you give him everything. And God says, well, take everything away from him. So he strips everything from Job. And Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. I praise God for who you are. We see this, this, this experience. We see this, this loyalty to Job, of, of Job to God. And, and Satan says, well, well, that's because he still has his health. And he still has, has his family. And, and God says, well, take it all away. And so God does. And so for 37 chapters, Job experiences... This, this hardships and this trial and this tribulation and this calamity. And, and he cries out for answers from God for 37 chapters. And then God shows up in chapter 38 and he answers Job after being silent for 37 chapters. And his answer to Job is not, well, I did this because, I did this because his answer to Job is, I'm God, you're not. Where were you when I created the heavens? Where were you when I hung the stars in the heavens? Where were you when I told the tide and the ocean you can go this far and no further? Where were you, Job, whenever I created? Nowhere. Who are you to say to me and question me what I'm doing? And the answer to Job was, I'm God, you're not. That's not a real good answer if you're Job. And so... This is very, this has that, that, that same feeling. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And as the reader, we're looking and we're saying, why? When I was a kid, I was inquisitive. I was one of those kids that, that whenever dad or mom would tell me to do something, my initial response was, but why? Go make your bed. But why? Why do I have to make my bed? In like eight hours, I'm going to be unmaking it and climbing into it again. This is stupid. It's just pointless. It's a pointless exercise. Why do I have to make my bed? Go, go clean your room. Why? I'm going to play with my toys in just a few minutes. I'm going to pull everything out. I'm going to mess up my room again. Why is it necessary that I clean my room? And so I was that kid that was always, but why, but why, but why? And so 
My parents consistently said, because I said so. And as a kid, that is the answer that just grates against everything that is inside of you. But, but, but why? Because I said so. But why? Why do you say so? Why is this? And, and so whenever I became an adult, when I became a parent, I said, I will never <laughs> tell my kids because I said so. Now, for those of you who have small children or who don't yet have children, whatever you say, I will never you will do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. If you tell God, I will never, God says, yeah, watch this. So I had children. I had three beautiful children and they became just like their dad. And anytime I told them something, the question was, but why? But why? And so inevitably, I began to say, because I said so. And from a parent's perspective, that's enough. From a kid's perspective, it's not. Here's the thing. God, in His great grace and in His great mercy, gives us explanations oftentimes. But he is holy and perfect and right, and in no time, in no place, in no realm of reality does God ever, is he ever mandated to explain himself to us. He is God, and we are not. We must understand and we must conclude that God is just in all of his ways, even if we don't understand. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 3 and verse 4. As God has given Israel the law for a second time, he's already given them the law once. Deuteronomy literally means the second law. As God gives the law a second time, because remember the whole first generation that was in the wilderness has died, and there is now a second generation. So God gives them the law a second time. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 3 and 4, we read, For I proclaim the name of the Lord. I ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all of His ways are just. They're right. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright, righteous and upright is He. In the book of Nehemiah, this is a very interesting passage. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 32, in the midst of Israel's exile... Which is interesting. In the midst of Israel's exile, Israel is suffering because of their sin. They are suffering because of their, uh, their worshiping false gods. They are suffering because of their inability to obey God's law. And in the book of Nehemiah, we are told that God is right in his exercise of judgment and justice. As the Assyrians come in and they destroy and they, they cast into exile uh, Israel and as uh, 
Persia follows and as the Babylonians follow and Israel is suffering under exile, Nehemiah says in chapter 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 32, it says, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who His covenant and His loving kindness, do not let all of the hardships and, the, and these insignificant things before you, which come upon us, as kings and princes, or priests, or prophets, and fathers, and all of your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to the days to this day, however, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. So we must conclude, as we read in Second Samuel chapter 24, we must conclude that even though God doesn't give us an answer, that He's just. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Why? We don't know. But God was just and right as his anger burned against Israel. Why? Because he said so. And sometimes that's okay. The question is, is when God doesn't give us an answer, are we able to worship him? Are we able to serve him? Are we able to to come before him even in our ignorance? If we can't accept and worship God in his mystery, that says more about us than it does about God. Because in our pride, in our arrogance, we think we deserve an answer. We think we deserve to know why God is angry. We deserve to know why these tribulations and these trials and these hardships are come upon us. Maybe, just maybe, God doesn't want to tell us. Maybe he wants us to be obedient just because he said so. And whenever we become frustrated at God because of his lack of revelation, it says more about us than it does about God. What's interesting is that David is, the scripture says in chapter 24, verse 1, that David is incited by the Lord. That's the implication. David is incited by God to to initiate a census. Now we later find out in chapter 24 that this census was sinful, that David that David conducting the census was a violation of the Torah. And so we see and, and the implication is that is that the Lord allowed or indirectly led David to commit this sin. David was incited by the Lord that he was he was goaded he was he was indirectly influenced to create this or to conduct this census and so we see that David that David commits iniquity against the Lord God's already angry because of Israel and then David commits this sin of conducting this the census and then we see that Gad the prophet comes to David and gives him three options, all of which are bad. My kids are into this, this thing now where they play, would you rather? And they say, would you rather, you know, uh, have, uh, you know, would you rather have an itch that you couldn't scratch or would you rather, uh, you know, uh, not be able to smell? And it's like, well, Neither. This is stupid. Why are we playing this game? You know, you know would, would, would you rather you know, not be able to speak for the rest of your life or would you rather not be able to ever hear? Like, well, neither. 
why are we and 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 they play this game and and my wife always like this is stupid why are we doing this and and but but the, this is this is apparently a thing and this is where david is david is playing the would you rather game except he's playing it with the fate of israel gad the prophet comes to david and say okay david would you rather all of israel suffer famine for 7 years or would you rather run for your life for three months? Or would you rather a plague come upon Israel for three days? And David's response is, none of this. This is not good. David's response to me speaks of David's intimate relationship with the covenant God. Listen to David's response. David is faced with an impossible decision. And he rests in God's omnipotent hand, and trust His mercy. Look at what he says in verse 14. David said to Gad the prophet, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great. This is the third time David has responded in kind. Go with me, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. After David is confronted with his sin of Bathsheba, notice what David says. Chapter 12, verse 22. David said, after he has been told that the the son that he is going to have will surely die, David says in verse 22, who knows? Maybe. The Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. David said, who knows? Maybe God's grace will be poured out and maybe this child will live. A little bit further in chapter 16, verse 12, whenever curses are being hurled at David. In chapter 16, verse 12, David says this, perhaps... The Lord will look upon my afflictions, upon my curses, and will turn good to me instead of curses this day. This is the third time that David places his faith and his trust, not in what he has done, not in his capabilities, not in in his great leadership, not in his wisdom, but he places his faith and his hand in the mercies of the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. He looks at his situation and he says, this is bad. This is really bad. But I want to place my fate in the hands of a merciful God. Why is David able to say this? I believe it's because David has an intimate relationship with God and he knows that judgment is his strange work. And he abounds in loving kindness. I believe that the text speaks volumes right here. The text tells us that God's anger burns against Israel. The text tells us that David has screwed up. Israel has screwed up. And now the wrath of God is about to fall on all of Israel. But in the midst of all of this, when when God enacts his plague, there are two verses... There are two verses that, are, that, that bookend the act of God's wrath. Look, look at the text 
Look at the text, because I believe the text tells us the character of God and speaks to the volume, uh, speaks to the veracity and the ferocity of God's grace and God's mercy. Verse 15 is the verse where, where the plague, the pestilence is, is, is initiated. Verse 15. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men from the people of Dan to Beersheba died. This is the, the climax of the passage. God pours out his wrath. The plague is sent. 70,000 people die. But sandwiched on either side of this is verse 14 and verse 16. Verse 14 says, Let us now fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Verse 16 says, The Lord relented from his calamity, told the angel to stop. Right in the middle, in the climax of the passage, when the plague is is being instituted, when God's wrath is being poured out, on either side we see these, these testimonies of God's great mercies. Of his, of his great grace and His great mercy being, being told about. And then in verse 16, we see the mercy of God being demonstrated. You see how the text sandwiches the wrath of God with the mercy of God and the mercy of God? David knew of God's grace. He knew of God's mercy because he had lived it. He was deserving of wrath. He was deserving of justice. He was deserving of death. And every time whenever he was deserving of wrath and deserving of death and deserving of justice, God's mercy stepped in. And so when David was faced with this impossible decision of bad versus worse, David said, I will place my hope, my my future, the future of Israel, I will place that in the hands of a gracious God. Micah chapter 7, the end of Micah, the author writes, Who is a God like thee, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He will have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot, yet thou will cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea. This is the character of our God. And this is why David is able to say, this is bad, this is really bad, but I want to trust and I want to place my hope and my faith and everything in the hands of this gracious, loving, kind God. Two things that the text tell us. The text tells us 70,000 people die. That's a bad day. That's a bad day if you're in Israel. 70,000 people die. It is is probable, based upon the text, that the pestilence, the plague, did not last the full time. But at the appointed time, God, the scripture tells us in verse 16, that God relented of his anger. It's the same passage used as the, the same Hebrew word used in the book of Genesis whenever God said he is going to destroy all of the earth and then God relented. God's justice, his judgment was, was stayed. It was, it was withheld. 
it was quenched. And it tells us that David asserts his culpability and begins to make a way for atonement. It's interesting. The angel of the Lord was about to enter Jerusalem. The pestilence was about to, the plague was about to enter Jerusalem. And as it was about to enter Jerusalem, it comes to the threshing floor, it comes to to a hill outside the city of Jerusalem. And it was owned by a man, a Jebusite, named Aruna. And this man, this Jebusite who owns this property, sees David approaching. He knows what's going on. He knows there's been a plague. He knows the pestilence is coming. He, he sees the inevitable. And he walks out and he sees the king. And he says, here, let, let me give you this land. The prophet has told David to build an altar here on this land. And, and the owner says, here, let, let me give you this land. Not only will I give you this land, I will give you the ox to sacrifice on the land. I will, I will cut up the, the, the yoke. I will give you the wood to, to build the altar. I'll give you the ox. I'll give you the land. I'll give you everything you need to make atonement here and to, to make an altar here. And David said, no. Somebody shows up and offers to give me a bunch of stuff. I say yes. David said no. Because David understood if it costs nothing, it's worth nothing. If it costs nothing, it's worth nothing. We have a, I believe, a fallacy in the man-centered gospel that we proclaim today. We proclaim, we proclaim this, this easy believism. All you have to do is say a prayer, ask Jesus to come into your heart, and you can have a get-out-of-hell-free card. It cost us nothing. That's not the gospel. Jesus said to his disciples, he who wishes to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus said, there are many that will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you cursed, for I never knew you. If it costs nothing, it's worth nothing. And David understood that. He said, I can't. Take this from you. I have to purchase it for you, from you. I have to, the, 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 our salvation is free to us, but it cost him everything. And we must understand that while grace is free, it's not cheap. David understood that if it costs nothing, it's worth nothing. And so he purchases this piece of land. He builds an altar. And he makes atonement. Interestingly enough, the piece of land that he purchased would become the very place where Solomon's temple was built. See, in verse 16, 
the wrath of God was stayed. But it's not until the offering is made, not until the altar is built, not until the land is purchased, the altar is built, and the sacrifice is made, that the wrath of God is satisfied. Verse 16, God says, stop. At the end of the passage, after David builds, after David purchases the property, builds the altar, sacrifices the ox, then the wrath of God is satisfied. Verse 16 doesn't end the passage. When God's mercy is, when God's wrath is stayed, whenever we are given a stay of execution, that does not satisfy the wrath of God. It wasn't until. It wasn't until the Lamb of God was put on an altar of wood on a hill outside the city, outside Jerusalem, and the sacrifice was made that the wrath of God was satisfied. Do you see the foreshadowing? Do you see what God is doing in this passage? He is saying, I will stay my wrath. I will hold out for just a little longer. I will, I will not allow you to suffer the consequence of your sin, the consequence that you deserve. Because my anger burns against you because you are, you are wicked, you are sinful, you deserve death. You deserve the wrath of God. I will stay my justice for just a little longer. And there will come a Davidic king who will come to a hill outside of the city, outside of Jerusalem, and there will be an altar of wood and there will be bloodshed on that altar. And then, only then, will the wrath of God be satisfied. When that Davidic king, Jesus, came to Jerusalem, He was taken outside of the city, hoisted up upon a hill, an altar of wood, a cross, and the blood was spilled. And God said, it is finished. It is paid in full. The wrath of God is satisfied. Then and only then was salvation accomplished. So this morning, I have a question. Can we worship a God who doesn't give us answers all the time? Can we worship a God with mystery? If we can't, what does that say about us? And as we look at this passage and we see that the wrath of God burns against us, may we look to not King David but a Davidic King Jesus to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. Will you pray with me? God, as we see your wrath being satisfied by your mercy, how we are overwhelmed by your grace. We are overwhelmed that in your omnipotence in your omniscience that you saw fit to send Jesus 
to take my place. That you sent Jesus to die a death that I deserve to die. If you're out there this morning, and for the very first time you realize that Jesus died for you. Not that he died for the sin of the world, not that, not that he died because God so loved the world, but that he died the death you were supposed to die. And your salvation cost him everything. Maybe God is calling you this morning to give your life to him. Maybe God is calling you this morning to forsake all else and follow Jesus. The rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to keep eternal life, to have eternal life? Jesus said, sell everything you have and come and follow me. That's the same message of the gospel. To give up everything and come and follow me. Jesus said, all those who wish to save their life will lose it, but all those who lose their life for the gospels will save it. Jesus wants you to come and follow him. Maybe this morning, God reminded you that he doesn't owe you an answer. Sometimes, as a loving, compassionate father, he simply says, because I said so. God, may we repent of our arrogance, demanding answers from God, and may we simply follow him and serve him. Maybe God's speaking to your heart this morning. He's calling you to become a member here at Redeemer. Maybe he's calling you to follow the Lord by being baptized. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, may today be the day of obedience. Maybe you need to come to this altar and pray. Thank God that his mercies endure forever. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning, may today be the day of decision. We ask for your Holy Spirit to have its freedom in this place this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.